Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ultra Rare, the podcast, a podcast focused on the intersection of science and Web3. We're also going to be getting into art, NFTs, philanthropy, and more as I take you on a tour through some of the personalities in this space. Today's episode is a collaboration with our friends at VitaDAO. They're an awesome science Web3 community. They're working on a number of different projects. I really recommend you check out their Discord community if you're interested in getting involved. If you enjoy this content, please click subscribe to this YouTube channel. This episode will also be available wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for listening. So we're starting off a new podcast series in the decentralized science space, and I'm broadly interested in talking to some folks that have been working on Web3 applications in scientific research. And two of the people I initially started talking to are on this call today, so Aria Lipman and Nicholas, and we've been having some really fun conversations around the idea of decentralized labs and how DAOs might play a role in the future of scientific research and biotech. So I'm excited to chat with Nick and Aria today and share their thoughts around this space and how we might grow the future of scientific research. So welcome to this new podcast. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, so maybe we can start with um, Aria, if you want to give a bit of your background and how you first got interested in the Web3 space. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks so much for having us. Uh, yeah, my name's Ari. Uh, I am a molecular biologist by training. Um, so uh, studied protein engineering and antibodies uh, back in my undergrad and then ended up... Um, uh, after school, uh, starting a company around some of the technology I was working on in the lab and had this kind of adventure of going from being a bench scientist to a entrepreneur and operator, um, which was a super exciting, but also really challenging experience. Um, and through that process ended up building a couple of different lab facilities to help the company, um, drive its technology forward. Um, and, uh, then ended up, uh, actually uh, founding a venture fund called Mars Bio that does seed investing in biotech and sin bio companies. But I've always been interested in the kind of translational process of, of early science into companies and products. And um, over the course of the last year or so, I've just been, been exploring different ways that uh, Web3 and decentralized science could potentially influence the way that biotech products um, and deep tech products are brought to market um, and that kind of takes us to today where we're working on LabDAO. Awesome. And Nick, what about your background and how you first got tied into this space? Yeah, um, so I'm a physician scientist at the German Cancer Research Center. I just recently finished medical school. Um, during medical school, I spent some time in the States um, studying biomedical informatics. So started out actually in the lab doing a lot of wet lab procedures and then gradually fell down the, the coding rabbit hole. And by now, 80, 90% of my day is spent in front of the screen. And I'm thinking a lot about 
analyzing biological data and also running experiments using using computers. Um, next to my day job as a scientist, I'm a core member at VitaDAO. VitaDAO is basically, I think, the first, definitely one of the larger um, decentralized autonomous organizations that's out there and tries to fund academic science that has a translational research potential. So the basic idea here is that we, we still live in a world where every nation basically and there are not too many not too many governments that have the financial freedom to fund basic science so it's basically the united states uh, europe in general and japan and china um, that that fund basic science by giving allocating capital to research universities to do to do research and basically what vita dao and these types of science funding DAOs um think about is well now that there's capital that can live on the web, why shouldn't there be organizations that allocate excess capital from the web to scientists? And it doesn't even have to be excess capital, but we can take this whole idea of technology transfer and intellectual property development, which is happening in the academic sector and is this a stream of revenue, at least for the excellent research universities such as MIT, Harvard, the Max Planck Society, um, and use this technology basically create something like an IP NFT. So scientists can actually take their intellectual property and tokenize it and make it fully tradable as well. So it also is manifestation on the web. So that's that's what we did. I uh, was doing it's funding scientists in return for an IP NFT that can then you know hold value related to the scientific project that was funded. And then if, if we're lucky, um, be the stepping stone of then direct development down the line, which would then be owned by this online community and would enable a sustainable funding model where the revenue from an IP NFT sale could then go flow back into funding more science. So that's what I do at night. And within VitaDAO, um, I started a couple of weeks ago, I started a channel that was called Decentralized Biotech because I was hearing, you know, I was definitely interested in this space for some time. I was always fascinated by these mobile COVID labs of, um, that were sprung up that were all situated in, in these cargo containers. Um, I think there was a group in London that did it. Um, been tinkering with these uh, open source robots for a while. I used a lot of robotics in my work at the German Cancer Research Center. And, and both of these interests together with now the opportunity of, of, of you know, allocating capital in a web community, they came together um, and we said, okay, well, I think we should have a dedicated room for talking about um, this type of work. And, and yeah, that's, you know, that's how it all started. That's how I met you, that's how I met Ari. And then here we are. Nick, you said something recently that I found really intriguing because it kind of opened my mind to the uh, maybe unexplored uses of DAOs, which we should probably at some point explain a little bit about what a DAO entails. If, if anybody wants to explain that for, for the listeners, feel free to jump in. Yeah, I can uh, just, just briefly kind of give a little bit of background on DAO. So um, stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, um, and 
the premise, I think, kind of initially when the DAO concept came to be, um, I suppose probably like in the early days of Ethereum was um, building an organization that's kind of on the blockchain or governed by uh, uh, rules that are maintained by a blockchain, as opposed to sort of typical corporate governance rules. Um, and I think it's that that's interesting for a couple of different reasons. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that all, if not most DAOs are uh, different from each other. So it's kind of a catch-all term and it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But the premise is, um, you know, rather than having kind of a typical corporate structure with uh, investors and employees owning kind of equity shares um, that are maybe governed by the rules of the state of Delaware or wherever else you might form the corporation, you have um, ownership governed by some sort of a token. So, um, you know, ownership in, in the DAO is kind of proportional to the number of tokens one owns and you can kind of vote accordingly. So I think what's interesting there from my perspective is that, uh, you know, um, it allows you to give ownership to maybe a wider swath of people, um, including uh, employees, third parties, partners, but it also gives you this kind of value liquidity where, you know, normally if you own a share shares in a private company, you really have no way to trade those shares freely. Um, you have no way to sort of get value out of those shares. Um, but in a, in a DAO context, there's actually a lot of liquidity of the value, which is kind of interesting. So that's kind of how I look at it. And there's a number of interesting benefits that kind of could apply in the DSI space, which we can talk about in a little bit. Yeah. I'm curious I mean, you have kind of an interesting perspective in the sense that you've been running a VC fund, correct? So mm -hmm. how do you how do you think about these two worlds and like how do they are they separate in the sense of like, you know, funding DAOs and then on the traditional side with VCs, is the future going to be a balanced mix or I mean, can you compare and contrast like, you know, as you just did um, traditional VC funding with um, how a DAO might go about funding a new company? Yeah. Um, so all of this stuff is evolving at the moment and there isn't kind of a clear, uh, I guess, clear intersection right now. So um, I've, I've had a number of discussions with people about how, how do DAOs potentially interact with VC funds, how do DAOs interact with startups? Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I'm operating a VC fund, which is kind of using a very traditional model. We have a allocation of capital in a limited partnership, um, which is just another type of corporate structure. And we, uh, you know, give that capital to startups in return for uh, equity, you know, shares of those startups. Um, and, so we now we have this pool of shares for, uh, in these different startups and they're owned by our investors um, as well as us. Um, now, uh, it's very interesting when you start to think about how does the world of VC interact with DAOs? Um, and, you know, one possible way is that a VC could basically acquire uh, tokens um, and people are trying to work out how exactly to do that from kind of a corporate and paperwork legal perspective. Um, it's not as, as easy as it sounds. Um, so that would be one potential way where uh, VC funds could, could hold tokens in different DAOs. Um, but 
in terms of how this thing evolves in the future, I think there's still going to be really good use cases for maybe more typical VC structures, um, especially in uh, industries that might not be so connected with Web3 or um, so uh, in the metaverse, as it were. Um, so I think both both areas are going to continue to grow. You're going to see a lot of investment in DAOs as novel corporate structures and also can, you know, continue to see investment from a typical VC perspective. Um, and I think they're also going to start blending together more and more. Uh, one, one model that I have about sort of more and more also blurring line between what is a, what is, what is an initiative, what is an organization that is more amenable to the classic VC type funding versus a DAO is I think um, the underlying structure in which people interact within that field. To put it differently, if you have a market that's extremely well functioning where you have competing companies, for example, developing therapeutic for one drug, um, it, in a market situation, the, the, the classic allocation of venture capital, I think, is the is going to stay, is going to keep being the classic modus operandi. While I think we see a lot of DAOs currently emerge around public goods, about about in a situation where the market is not the most effective mechanism to allocate resources, but it's uh, there's one shared public good that needs to be efficiently. Um, governed, and I think science funding, global science funding is one of these public goods um, that that basically lends itself better to a DAO structure than a market participating company that that we all know um, from from the sort of I guess Web two internet era. So I think a lot of DAO, a lot of DAOs are currently emerge around public goods and how to um, basically as a community govern them. And I think we're going to see more and more DAOs take the shape of something that, you know, looks a bit like a market participant that we know from Web2. Um, um, so, so there might be sliced traces of competition happening. Um, but, but generally, I think the overarching idea with DAOs is that instead of having a market, you have a network of collaboration and a lot of people participate in that network. Yeah, I want to comment on two points you made. One is around public goods. So the way I think about this with regards to drug development are, you know, drugs that we could potentially repurpose or, you know, drugs that might not be getting developed because it's such a small patient population or, you know, drugs that are off patent and therefore um, companies don't stand to profit in the traditional biotech sector. Um, and I and I am seeing some interesting developments in that space on more the traditional company side of folks moving towards starting public benefit corporations. And I think it's slotting into such an interesting white space in this uh, industry, right, of trying to develop some of these things further and really uh, provide them to the patients. Um, the other thing you touched on that I want to elaborate on, because I think What's become clear to me about uh, groups like VitaDAO is that there really is this like community involvement and um, collaborative nature of the organization that you've you've helped build. Um, and there's kind of a lot of different aspects of that that I think 
are very fruitful and, and help it become more than just, um, you know, a connected group of people making a funding decision on a, on a product or a company, right? So maybe if you both could talk about how you view the kind of additional incentives or structures that come with the DAO community um, that make it almost more intriguing to me uh, than like a traditional company in a way, or maybe they're not that different. Maybe it's just, you know, organization to organization. Just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I could start. Um, yeah, I think that was definitely something that intrigued me was this. Um, obviously, there's a lot of community and momentum around Web3 and um a lot of kind of interest and buzz and people are quite excited about it. So I think you have to kind of, I've been trying to parse how much of it is, is just hype and excitement because obviously we have a lot of um, value being created or sort of uh, um, excitement in the crypto market. So there's a lot of money to be had as it were, but I think beyond that, there's a lot of really interested, intelligent people who in particular developers, um, kind of on the software side who are very interested in this space. And for me as a biotech investor slash biologist, um, that's always been a challenge in terms of building teams and recruiting, uh, finding talented developers uh, who um, really know the world of software, but also can work, want to work on sort of deep tech or biotech problems. Um, so, and I think there's kind of also you know, uh, like Nick said, there's this thirst for, um, for for folks to work on big problems. And I think this is kind of the perfect intersection where uh, if we're successful in building this kind of distributed research network, um, and if we're successful in building a lab DAO, it's really going to accelerate science in a substantial way. And um, what I was excited about and kind of participating was uh, having access to these community and developers who want to work on this problem and may have a better way to solve it than any developer I've met before. And in return, because it is, you know, a tokenized mechanism, we can actually give them part of the, um, of the, of the DAO, you know, we can, we can allow them to participate in the upside. So I think that's quite exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to jump into like how this idea first started percolating for the two of you and, you know, just how the conversation started and, and maybe summarize where it's at today and, and where you want it to go in the future. Yeah, I can, I can start with that. But maybe before I jump into that, um, I can add two more comments on the, the difference between the company and the DAO and I think what, why, why they are so popular right now, if, that, that if that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, the, the way I think about these companies that basically they're they're nodes in a network but they're they're basically part of a market so there's composition a competition between these entities and then a lot of times that competition that competition is is not it's not necessary in a way but it's something that might have just historically emerged given that we used to live in a world where geography was a primary constraint and human collaboration and uh, the governance rights for these organizations, they were, um, they were very illiquid. They involve, involve lawyers and in the case of the United States, US contract law. So, so you have 
you have basically a lot of geographically distributed organizations emerge. They have very illiquid ownership and governance rights and they're highly permissioned. So the natural emergent modus to interact between these organizations that all have the same idea because technology has enabled them to, for example, solve a problem is the market. The market is the ideal operating system for this sort of web two world. Now, in the web three world, humans are able to collaborate in a network. The web has enabled everybody to interact. I'm calling you from Germany right now and you're like you're on the other end of the planet basically and it feels like nothing. Um, there's no geographic constraint and these smart contracts instead of US contract law and allow us to have extremely liquid governance, right? Everybody can in an instant become an owner in the product in the project. I can give someone who has done something useful for the project in an instant ownership in, in the network. So there's just a very, very liquid flow of ownership rights, which basically leads to the emergence of this next chapter, I think, of human collaboration, which is the network, right? Because it, there's no geographic constraint that's leading to the parallel instantiation of organizations that would then lead um, to competition and the market, but there's basically this just global emergence of people that attach and a lot of preferential attachments. A lot of people join one DAO because they want to see that thing being built. So just final note on this, there, there's currently this, this hype on Twitter about constitution DAO. A couple of people come together and they try to buy the US constitution. Just think about this a couple of years ago, if there wasn't the DAO framework, you know, maybe there was a group on the West Coast and a group on the East Coast, and they tried to bid them a bit for the U.S. Constitution. Now, that was basically a coordination failure because all they wanted is to say that I own a piece of the U.S. Constitution, but because they didn't know each other or they couldn't communicate, or the legal structure might have not worked out because one group was in Canada and not in the U.S., you know, there would be a lot of unnecessary competition because, but at the end of the day, everybody just wanted to own a piece of the U.S. Constitution. So now DAOs allow everybody, even me, that I'm not even a U.S. citizen, to participate in that DAO and, and own a piece of the U.S. Constitution if I wanted to. Um, I think that's just just an example for, I think, uh, why there's a lot of hype because it, it enables us to work totally different. I have a random... Or, nerdy question around that um, idea of the globalization of this community. Do you think that the good morning thing is partly because we're all in different time zones and it's like funny to see people say GM at any time of the day? I, I think that's part of it. Um, and, and Ari, maybe you know more about it. I've, I've, I've Googled it, I think, once, and I think it, it, it's a trend that came out of India when a lot of people, for the first time, had access to mobile internet and basically free text messages. I think there was this trend where people suddenly used, like, they used their free, free bandwidth to basically say good morning to everybody, because before that, it was pretty expensive to just say good morning to the people you cared about, and then it was basically this local phenomenon. That's at least what I heard. I don't know whether that's just folklore or something real. I, okay. I think you're on to I think you're onto something with the global uh, the global feel of this whole community and that it's it's mourning for someone somewhere all the time. Uh, right. So I think you're right. You know, I mean, 
Nick sent me a GM in his morning, which was like, you know, nine hours ago or eight hours ago. <laughs> but I got it this morning, just like an hour ago. So <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you're right about the global, like it's, it's, it's always GM for someone somewhere. <laughs> When I first bit of a meme. read about yeah. it, I, you know, and there was some like Twitter chatter around like, this is ridiculous. I don't understand this. And then as I started participating in like the Vita Dow GM channel, I was like, this is actually pretty cool. <laughs> like people say GM at like any time of day. And then I have kind of a frame of reference of like what, you know, person's morning is going on. It's an interesting kind of like way to connect over a very basic part of our reality, right? Um, okay, I want to get more into LabDAO because, um, you know, we've been kind of generally speaking about DAOs so far, and I think forming a really good basis of um, what a DAO is and what it kind of looks like and how it compares to the tr traditional sector. Um, but when we talk about a decentralized lab environment, that's kind of a a big thing to take on. Um, and if anybody has worked in, you know, the biotech or physical lab space, there's a lot that goes into running a lab and the resources that that entails and um, the types of equipment and reagents and all of the things that have to happen and come together to be able to perform, you know, experimental science, for instance. So, how should we start talking about how that would work as a DAO? Who wants to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I, I can start. Maybe we could start with this a little bit of background, I guess, on how Nick and I started talking about this. Um, That'd be great. So uh, I think both of us independently have been having a lot of similar, uh, similar thoughts about a concept like this. And for me, um, you know, I've been uh, in the research space for more than 10 years, working with various, uh, you know, building labs, working in labs myself, working with CROs, contract research organizations, basically outsourcing different types of science. Um, and throughout this history, I mean, there's been, there's been kind of this dream of what if you could just do science in the cloud? Uh, what if you really had the ability to, from your laptop, um, run a bunch of experiments and just gave the data back. You know, that, that's kind of been a dream. And if that were to come to fruition, it would really catalyze exponential growth and growth in uh, research output. Uh, it would just be kind of incredible. And, you know, oftentimes you look at AWS as a similar analogy with software. Um, and, you know, there, there've been kind of a slight, there's been attempts at this, but it's really been mostly incremental, uh, but that said, there are a lot of things that scientists outsource now and have just become commonplace. You know, um, we mentioned DNA synthesis in the uh, post that we did. Um, that's one where, you know, very few scientists own a, a DNA synthesis machine. They just uh, type in their sequences into a portal online, order them and get the DNA back in a few days or a week. Um, so there's been incremental process, uh, progress towards just kind of outsourcing, outsourcing lots of science. So. Um, the kind of, I guess, you know, the aha moment really came when, um, I started just thinking about, um, how, uh, if, if you were able to build sort of a cohesive layer on top of all of these existing service providers, um, and, uh, allow 
consumers, scientists um, all over the world to sort of interact with these different service, service providers in a streamlined way, that would be super exciting and super powerful. And, um, you know, I think I'm coming at it kind of maybe from the having the painful experience of outsourcing lots of science. And I think Nick is coming from it more from actually, even though he is a biologist, coming from, at it more from the software side. So maybe I'll let him talk about kind of how he arrived at this idea as well. Yes. Um, so I think soft, both software and biology is probably not very accurate. I think I've, uh, I've, I've definitely, I've definitely produced a lot of software now, but, but um, it's really just these very simple biologist scripts. And, but even though while I was producing them, you know, I, I was always, it was always baffling to baffling to me that. I could I could program this large robot in our in in the lab I work at that I can do these high throughput drug screens, but it's there's really no one out there in the world that has thought about programmatically running a qPCR end to end, and it and it always struck me that why that existed. Um, I always try to understand why these very mundane tasks that are done across the world, a ton like in parallel, multiple times, why they have not seen the same amount of automation than these, I think, very um, very complex methods such as screens, drug screens, or um, have. So that's the way I first got exposed with it, and I was, I think that that was like four years ago when I was thinking of what if there was a way to completely automate these mundane lab tasks um, as well, and. At that time, I think that was just really hard because um, you would have to basically do all of these steps yourself within the lab that you that you locate to, and, and then came the idea: okay, well, could you outsource it? And there's Emerald Cloud Labs and and others, but then you would still be somewhat constrained to their hardware stack, and that, that for a very long time, the hardware that they offer was just not sufficient to do all the experiments you can think of. Um, and over the last year. Um, I think something that has propelled my thinking was the observation that, hey, there's um, there are these global challenges that we need to solve, such as uh, COVID. And um, yes, a lot of this lab hardware is you know, geographically distributed, and there are very few organizations that have all the labware that's required to run something. But now we have permissionless protocols that allow transfer of assets, transfer of capital. And maybe that is the kicker. Maybe that's the unlock where uh, you can make people collaborate even though they don't have a you know, fully fledged um, facility to do all the lab work you want, but there's a way to run experiments where one experiment is run in location A and then another part of an experiment or a totally separate process is run in location B. And there's one shared standard in which I can interact with both of these organizations. Um, and that's basically where this idea was born out that can you have a smart contract research organization, something that has a standardized interface where you say what you want to do and you can find someone in the world that's willing to do the service for you for a given fee. Yeah, I want to get into the nitty gritty a little bit more as far as what a smart CRO uh, network would look like and you know some of like what 
what would folks have access to as a result of this network, right? That doesn't currently exist today. Um, and we've already started talking through some of this and, and sketching this out. Um, but I think, Nick, you highlighted the fact that uh, many companies are using certain networks to gain access to CROs and um, eliminating some of the pain points that Ari mentioned. Um, but if either of you could elaborate on what some of those pain points are and how you foresee LabDAO being able to alleviate some of those. Yeah, um, yeah, I can start. I mean, right now the sort of global CRO outsource research ecosystem is very, it's very fragmented. Um, it's, uh, you know, this, this work is done in individual companies, hundreds, if not thousands of them. And, uh, you know, the, that, that means that the process of even something that you might call standard, like I'd like to get an antibody expressed, or I'd like to get one gram of antibody protein, um, of my specific protein that I validated in the lab, that process is very cumbersome. Um, you end up having to you know, get custom quotes from many vendors who are hard to find and the pricing is going to be all over the map and the quality of the work that gets done will also be all over the map. Um, so there's very little standardization amongst different, uh, amongst different vendors and navigating the environment is quite challenging. Um, I will say that because there is such a wide range of tasks to be done, we're going to start pretty narrow with, with LabDAO. Um, we're probably going to start with uh, what we're calling bit-to-bit -bit tasks, um, which would be kind of more in the bioinformatics space where it's more a matter of doing analysis uh, on somebody else's machine and getting you that data back. But uh, nonetheless, the, the sort of challenge uh, remains or the issues remain with the current environment where there's, you just don't have a lot of information about how much something's going to cost you, how long it's going to take, and the process of even kind of getting to those answers is, is really cumbersome. So those are definitely some of the things we want to uh, uh, sort of augment or, or help with, uh, with LabDAO. And I think, you know, next to this, these bit of bit-to-bit -bit operations that are purely computational, so for example, folding a protein or folding multiple proteins, there are still bioinformatic processes that just require a lot of compute, which is not available to everybody. And it creates, although we have Docker and other tools that allow you know, somewat of a hardware independent inference of, of these algorithms, there's still a bit of friction. And I wonder whether there would be a way to even simplify that process further. And that's, I think, what we, what we mean when we think about these bit-to-bit operations. On the other hand, there are also experiments are a bit to bit. So screening experiments, for example, where you systematically perturb biology, um, but you have a standardized model system and you have a standardized readout. So for example, CRISPR viability screens or um, image-based profiling, so array drug screens or single cell RNA-seq um, with perturbation. These are extremely dense experiments where a lot of data is being generated and these platforms, for, I think for the first time, they can generate more data than the develop, than the inventor of that method can digest in one career. So 
that I think creates a scenario where you could also have these bit-to-bit -bit operations where 100 people, they basically submit their favorite genes that they want to be tested in the run. And then the experiment is, is conducted and the results are uploaded. Nobody that submitted the gene has to touch the experiment in any way in the physical world, but they receive the data. And because it's a community funded screen in a way, everybody gets to then analyze the data or a portion of the data, which I think is extremely interesting. So that, that's, that's a sort of second type of bit-to-bit -bit operation that we think about. And then in the future, you could have bit-to-atom, atom-to-bit, atom-to-atom, where you know actual lab, lab equipment is shipped around or like reagents are shipped around. But for, for obvious reasons, it's easiest to start with the information transfer. Um, yeah, so, so that's, that's, I think, what we, what we think about in the short term. But ideally, you know, it, this will look a lot like um, something that both, that both academic labs can use, but also um, biotechs and, and CROs at the same time to, to coordinate. And I think that's um, something I'm particularly excited about is that it, it somewhat blurs the line between, okay, what, what is a community resource that has been funded by the community um, as, a, as a resource? So let's just take, for example, AlphaFo2, right? That's, an, that's open source, um, but you cannot use it for commercial purposes. Now there is something like OpenFold that can actually be used for uh, commercial purposes as far as I know. What if there was just one resource and whoever wanted could just ping it and, and, and pay it a couple a couple tokens to make it work. I think that's something that I'm really inter interested in. It's a blurring line between these two sectors. If I had to break it, summarize it all, I think what we want to do is build a two-sided marketplace for people that want to run experiments and people that can run experiments. Awesome. And have yeah. that marketplace be owned by the community. Yeah. Very exciting. And as far as the short term, what what do you see that marketplace looking like for, you know, the CROs that would be involved? Is it really majority cloud labs like Emerald Cloud Labs or, you know, what's your vision there as far as who would who would participate in this experimental DAO? I mean, I, I would love to be, I think even... Um... First of all, I definitely don't think it should all be CROs, existing CROs on the platform. It could be, uh, again, if it's a bioinformatics type task, it could be as simple as someone uh, who happens to have the right piece of software on their laptop and knows how to do the analysis. So there isn't any requirement that, it, that the sort of providers on the platform already be established CRO type businesses. And you know, we may actually have better luck with uh, non-CRO uh, folks who maybe are a little bit more curious or flexible or excited about doing something totally, totally out of the ordinary. <laughs> uh, so, so I'll, I'll kind of start with that. But um, outside of that, yeah, we're imagining, um, you know, potentially academic labs, uh, potentially smaller CROs, uh, we may be able to, there's some existing kind of CRO marketplaces out there. Um, we may be able to partner with them to leverage some of their existing network. Um, but uh, I think we're kind of, we're kind of open to all participants um, 
and you know in, in particular happy to have kind of even individuals and independent labs in the platform down the line we may even determine that it makes sense for uh us to start getting involved in uh you know spinning up labs or funding um, particular lab type entities if, if necessary yeah i think that's a good point and one of my personal interests in the space um came from a friend of mine who was looking for somewhere to put his mass spec instrument and not being able to locate lab space for it in this whole city and you know trying to figure out what that would look like um could we put it in my garage or are there some kind of lab modules that you could build cheaply to um house a piece of equipment and uh, along those lines i heard of a micro CRO in California where they're doing just that. They have just, you know, one piece of equipment that they run and um, people send them their samples and they send them the data. And uh, you could imagine that um, along this idea of decentralization, there being a decentralized network of lab equipment and the ability to run these processes uh, in different parts of the world. I mean, hopefully up to code and, and standards, but um, I, I don't know. It's an exciting space because as you're probably aware, a lot of uh, incubators and lab space are quite limited in many of the major biotech hubs, at least in the U.S. right now. So um, that's definitely a, a constraint and, you know, a lot of equipment that lives within the existing biotech uh, infrastructure isn't necessarily utilized all the time. Uh, same goes for equipment that's at universities. So um, potentially being able to capitalize on that unused uh, space or equipment could really alleviate some of the bottlenecks. Yes, I think you touched on, on two aspects I, I want to zoom in on. But you, you, on the one hand, we have this just, I think, real lack of lack of lab space. I've talked to now a couple of people that are about my age, maybe a bit younger, and they're currently co considered going to grad school. And their their number one motivation when I talk to them is, um, I want to be a biotech founder. And if you translate that into you know the Web two world, that would mean the only way that you could be a technical founder for a software company would be if you um, went and got a PhD in computer science. Well, we all know that that's not where most, you know, software company founders are coming from. And that, that's definitely not the path that most of the people took that powered this incredible pr progress that we've seen over the last 10 years. And so basically, right now, I think a PhD in biology is the one route, the most established route for people to become technical founders in biotech. Now, when you double, when you double click on that and you talk to the people, most of the time they say, well, I already have my ideas. I already, I think, understand a good amount of biology. I just need to do the PhD so I can stand the lab and, and, and I can sort of spend time in the lab, understand how, you know, how to operate and eventually build my own lab or help build their own lab. And I think that is, to some extent, terribly inefficient. Um, and, and if there was a resource where the community owned lab space, I think that would be a great win for everybody. And, and especially, I think, in locations 
that are extremely dense with a lot of talent, but not a lot of lab space. And there are some market inefficiencies, I think, right now where a very few number of real estate developers, for example, in the United States, own most of the, the lab-enabled real estate. And, and if there was a way to, as a community, come together and, and basically broaden the, the supply of, of real estate for labs, I think that would be huge. So that's the one part. And then you mentioned the second part, which is um, which is a risk of a permissionless market, which is, for example, if you want to submit an experiment, you don't know what's the quality of that experiment going to be um, if you don't know who's actually going to run it. And, and I think that's an extremely important point because it shows you that every market or most markets in the world are based on a public good. And in our case, it would be the public good of good scientific practice, um, data integrity, good clinical practice, good laboratory practice. Now, how are you gonna ensure as a market that these public goods, public values are maintained? And there's no other way than to take a, to find a way, find a sustainable mechanism um, to, to basically fund uh, grants and that are governed by the community to, to ensure that all the work that's happening within the lab DAO is up to standard. And, um, and that's, why you need, that's why you need some kind of marketplace with maybe perhaps a fee model. So there's a community treasury that then can go and fund these type of projects that try to ensure the quality of, of the science that's happening, try to think through mechanisms that are required to maintain that everything is up to standard. And I think that's an extremely important point. Right. So this is not this is not something that you could just spin up and then you know people would just go and exchange these services. There would be a huge breakdown of trust, right? The reason Airbnb works is because you know that Airbnb is going to wire your money. You know that Airbnb checks the places you can go to. You know that there's a, a rating system you can trust. So all of these things I think can now be built in a community way, and and I think that's important, right? Yeah, there's a quality control aspect to science, of course. And I think a standardization opportunity within this lab DAO or decentralized marketplace idea um, for companies to potentially lean on each other to understand uh one another's standards. So the example we were talking about recently was with in vivo experiments and how many mice per arm and you know some of these basic kind of studies that one needs to do to develop a drug treatment that would then um, you know be submitted as a data package to the FDA. And one idea I, I wanted to mention because I thought it was quite interesting is that there might be a way within this um, Web3 structure to incentivize companies to share information with one another that they wouldn't normally share. Um, and what would that look like? You know, perhaps they have published or shared protocols or people pay a certain amount of money to view those protocols and then there's hidden information that they can then access via tokens. Um, and then that company profits off of the information that they're willing to share. And I think for me personally, 
the idea that you could incentivize um, traditional corporations. And again, I'm not saying that this will happen, but the idea alone, I think, is really compelling. Um, the idea that you could incentivize them to actually help one another collaborate on these very hard problems of developing drugs for you know, a variety of diseases for which there is no cure. Um, and the idea that, you know, most of them might not be successful, um, but we're going to help each other through this part of the problem anyways, uh, is really exciting and kind of, um, just, yeah, very like optimistic and, and hopeful and eye-opening in a way that, um, one could utilize, you know, web three to try to change how, uh, biotech companies are actually doing science. There's this, uh, wag me meme in web three, which stands for, we are all going to make it. And I think right now in biotech, that's definitely not the spirit, um, where, where, and there's a lot of competition. And I think competition needs to exist because it's a market and you have multiple drugs that want to target the same um, the same disease, if there was no competition, then you would only have one drug and that drug might be inferior. So you know, markets are by and large a pretty efficient mechanism to um, come to this solution you want, you want to get to. But I think especially in biotech, we also see the inefficiencies of markets um, and, and the, especially the inefficiencies of the legal system and the way that part markets can function because the, the atomic unit in the biotech industry is oftentimes the biotech company. Right, and maybe they can, you know, license some of a, a patent out, but that's basically how granular they can get. Now, what if um, we we have this technology called IP NFTs that we're developing within VitaDAO and especially within Molecule, the company that pioneered that concept, is that uh, you can basically take every data asset. It could be a trade secret. It could be a pat- exclusive license to a patent, and you can basically instantiated um, on, a, on a Web3 file system, such Arweave, IPFS. And um, that you could mint an IP NFT that points to that data storage and gives you the rights to that data, or at least the right to look at that data. So what if, and I think that's exactly what you described, what if you're a biotech and you want to create, you have this CAR-T cell line that, you develop, that you're developing, and you now inject the CAR-T into a tumor-bearing mice. Now there's some data that you really just want to own for yourself, but there's some data that you might be okay with selling for a thousand bucks. So for example, how many cells did I inject into, into that mice at day five, right? That is not critical data for the FDA. Like that is not gonna infringe your, like that's not gonna destroy or void your patent on the drug that you're developing and, and all the financial value that comes with it. But it might be something that, um, that in the, in the sort of classic world that we currently live in would never be shared with someone else. But what if you could now in, the, in this new world that I think we're all imagining actually take that information, tokenize it and have a separate financial asset, a separate IP NFT that then could be purchased by the highest bidder or it could be purchased for a fixed price. And these are the type of um, technologies that I think now make it possible to not only have this, these two modes where it's either full competition or full collaboration, that could be 
that could basically be something in between where we have our core asset, we're developing that core asset, but we're also creating very interesting data, but on the, on the side and for a small fee, we're able, we're willing to share that with the community. And I think those are the type of mechanisms that, are, that, that might actually blur the lines between these two. Yeah, sides. I just, just want to add a couple, couple things to that. Um, there, there's this concept of pre-competitive research in certain industries. Um, and in particular in the semiconductor industry where uh, in order to advance the field, there are investments needed on the scale of billions, if not tens of billions to advance to kind of the next semiconductor node. And uh, companies come together and co-develop some of these underlying structures and components and uh, they invest in this pre-competitive research uh, together. And then on top of that, they develop kind of their unique products. So I think animal models is a good example of something like that, where what if, uh, you know, for example, um, I do some, some work in the psychedelic space. And one of the biggest challenges in the psychedelics investing space is there's, there really aren't very good animal models for a lot of these drugs. So what if it was a possibility of kind of the end product, the biopharma companies coming together and investing in pre-competitive research and using token economics to kind of uh, share value there? I think that would be really exciting. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that this may actually allow, you know, one of the big issues in science is that no one publishes their failures and no one shares the, the things that went wrong. All of that gets lost, you know, even in academia, certainly in industry, all that stuff gets buried and no one ever finds it. So imagine if you could actually monetize your failures. I think that would be super fascinating. Uh, I'm just imagining like, you know, uh, a, a fund that was exclusively focused on a basket of IP, of fa failed IP, you know, and, and, and actually being able to monetize the, the things that didn't work because that information is actually very valuable. That would be amazing. I mean, having some kind of marketplace to sell negative data that you likely spent a ton of money producing. I mean, and the way it works right now is just word of mouth, right? Like within certain industries, oh yeah, we tried that and it didn't really work or, you know, and there's even, I mean, there's common things like flag tag antibodies and well, how many flag, you know, copies are you going to insert as a epitope tag to make it actually work in your experimental setting um you know i just yeah and and also the like pre-competitive uh collaboration aspect i did not know about that it's not my area of expertise but i can think of so many use cases for certain fields within uh the drug development industry and um just from a you know like AAV distribution or, you know, some of these non-human primate studies that every company is essentially going to have to do if they want to file with the FDA. And I mean, even from an ethics perspective, like why aren't we collaborating on things like that, right? Um, so very, very uh, eye-opening. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I want to be cognizant of the time. So if you guys have any other comments around LabDAO or the future of this project or um, specific kind of call outs for what you're looking to 
um, you know, get from folks, that would be good. Um, yeah, I guess I could start really quick. So um, we're definitely um, recruiting interested people who want to participate and both on the side of, I guess there's kind of maybe three, three broad categories. The first is consumers or scientists who would want to use the platform. The second is folks who can actually help us build the platform, the kind of electronic lab notebook, data controls, the Web3 uh, interface layer uh, between sort of scientists and the resources they need. And the third category is actually folks who have um, CRO-like resources, whether it's lab space or uh, sort of unique scientific capabilities that they'd want to offer on the platform. Um, so yeah, looking for to build to build out that community. We're only kind of a few weeks into the process, but we're excited to just talk to more and more people about this and and uh, get get things moving. I second that. Yeah, I think something that's important is that we we look for these three types of people: the builders, the consumers, and the providers of these services across the whole spectrum of for-profit and, and, and non-profit. So if you're a scientist and you're interested in contributing, or if you're a scientist, you have a method that can scale really well, but basically you just need to find a way to, to commercialize it in this nonprofit way and talk to us. At the same time, if you're a CRO and you have a service that you want to provide, um, talk to us as well. And the same goes for the people that consume these services. Either, either you know, you can be a biotech that's totally virtual, but you can also be a lab that just wants to run a couple experiments, but doesn't have the infrastructure right now. We'd love to talk to you either way. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. It's such a novel space. And, and for me personally, as a scientist stepping into some of these communities and having these conversations, there's just so much exploration happening. And I think for, for new companies that have resources that could be used by others, this could be a really great entry point into the Web3 world and um, getting to know some of the folks in this community um, and also potential, you know, resource and kind of uh, um, novel niche that you could inhabit um, within, within the decentralized science space. So really exciting time. I'm just, I think every conversation I have, I just feel like my mind's expanding with the possibilities here. Um, and I really appreciate uh, the conversations we've been able to have and uh, some of the, you know, thoughts that we're getting down. Um, recommend people check out the uh, article that Ari and Nick published on this topic. And um, yeah, feel free to reach out to any of us about um, about joining us on this exciting new mission. Um, so thank you both. Thank you for having us. That wraps up this episode of Ultra Rare, the podcast. This episode was sponsored by Vita Dow. Please consider subscribing to their YouTube channel and check out their Discord community, which I will link below. Thank you to our guests, Nicholas and Ari, for walking us through LabDAO. Lots of exciting things happening in that space. So again, encourage you to go check that out. And I hope you learned a lot from this episode. Thanks so much for listening.